Amen. Let's give applause for our wonderful Savior. What a wonderful name it is. You have your Bibles turned over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we'll start in verse 1. And if you're new here or you're watching online, I'm Pastor Lucas Cunningham. And, uh, and so we are glad that you are here. If it's your first time in a long time, um, I'm the new pastor. I came in June. Brother Connie retired and um, look forward to meeting Brother Connie here in the next week or two and uh, your previous pastor and uh, he can give me the DL on some of you. I got some questions and uh, I'm just teasing. No, he has a nervous laugh out there. I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. Wonderful group of people here. But here we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1 says this letter is from Paul chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from the brother Sosthenes. I am writing to God's church. And notice that. God's church. It says every church belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to a pastor. It doesn't belong to an elder board. It doesn't belong to deacons. We're a part of something bigger than ourselves. And so uh, each church, local church, we're part of something larger in the kingdom of God. But this here, this church in Corinth is God's church, God's church in Corinth. To you who have been called by God to be his own holy people. If you're wondering what does God uh, desire in your life, what does he want to do in your life? Well, he wants to make you holy. He wants to make you more like his son, Jesus. And we all are in different places in that. So maybe you're a young Christian and you're still learning. And we're all learning, right? We never get to a point where we're like, you know what? I think I'm done reading the Bible or I'm done learning or I'm done growing in my faith. No. God is still working on every single one of us. And so own holy people. And he made you holy by means of Christ Jesus. You're not holy but just by yourself. You're not holy just because you go to church. It's something that God did in us by the means of Christ Jesus when he did it on the cross and his resurrection. Just as he did for all people everywhere who call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you peace and grace. I always thank my God for you and for the gracious gifts he has given you. Now that belong to you in Christ Jesus. Through him, God has enriched your church in every way. With all of your eloquent words and all of your knowledge, that this confirms that what I told you about Christ is true. Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be free from all blame the day uh, when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will do this. For he is faithful to do what he says. Amen? And he has invited you, I love this, into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before your presence thankful for our church. Thankful that you use broken people for your glory. That you use people, uh, as it's been said, you will take a crooked stick and hit the bullseye every single time. You use imperfect people, and you use imperfect churches. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that we're reminded that you love the church, that you're for the church, and that you've given the church um, to be armed with the gospel of Jesus Christ to give the answer to the world. The answer is the church. The answer is the gospel. The answer is you. 
And so, God, I pray that we see this. We love you. We thank you for our church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the title of this message is The Perfect Church. Now, I'll just go ahead and tell you right now, if you find the perfect church, don't join it. You're going to mess it up. All right? (laughs) Every one of us. If I find one, I won't tell you because I'll mess it up before you get there. None of us are perfect. No churches are perfect. Not a one. There's a story about a rich man who uh, went to his preacher and said, Preacher, I want you and your wife to go to the Holy Land. I want you to go to the different you know, places the Bible speaks of for three months. I'm going to pay for it. Man, he was all excited about that. So he did. And he went. And he said, when you come back, I'll have a surprise for you. All right? So the um, wealthy parishioner greeted him at the airport when he got back after three months. He said, hey, while you were gone, uh, I had a completely new church building built. It was designed by the best. I paid for it for myself. It is the finest building money can buy. So no expense was spared. And sure enough, as the preacher toured this new facility, it had the best stonework on the outside. It had the beautiful wood, the latest technology, everything you needed on the inside. But there was one oddity about the building, when he went into the sanctuary, there was only one church pew in the back. No chairs, no pews, just one church pew in the back. And he said, uh, I think you forgot some pews here or chairs or whatever. What are the people going to sit in? He said, don't worry about it. You'll see Sunday morning. Okay. So sure enough, as people came in through the door, and of course, like good Baptists, they sat in the pew, the only pew. It was in the back. They were happy. They thought they were set up. Well, as soon as that pew was full, that pew automatically, uh, the gears switched, the sensor went off, and it went all the way to the front, and a new pew packed up, uh, popped up in the back. And sure enough, people sat there, and it brought them to the second, the, the, the second row, and it just continued until the whole church was full and he thought the preacher thought to himself this really is the perfect church building this is perfect this is great and so he was excited he got to preaching he got going and he saw a countdown we have a countdown i've been wondering what the countdown's about anyway but maybe this makes sense but there was a countdown and um as soon it got down to 59 minutes and 59 seconds and then it hit an hour and unbeknownst to the preacher suddenly a trap door underneath his feet (laughs) opened up he is gone and that was the end of the service and the whole congregation thought to themselves this really really is the perfect church (laughs) building the perfect church the perfect church i found a poem i'm not a real big poem guy but i found this poem and it had to go with this idea of the perfect church if you find the perfect church without one fault or smear for goodness sake don't join the church you'll spoil the atmosphere but since no perfect church exists where people never sin let's cease looking for that church and love the one we're in there is no perfect church and if there was a church that wasn't perfect I mean, if you were going to compare imperfect churches, Corinth took the cake. I mean, they really did. There were some things going on 
here in Corinth that leaves your head scratching. And in fact, if, if I had started or if a friend of mine had started the church in Corinth, I'd be like, man, what are you doing? But uh, the Apostle Paul started this church. There's some interesting things about this church. I want to give us a little bit of background, a little bit of feel here, okay? In Acts 18, we find the Apostle Paul leaving the city of Athens and heading about 50, 60 miles west to the city of Corinth. Now, it made geographical sense because Corinth was a major east-west crossroads and on an isthmus between two major gulfs. And so what they would do as ships would come in to dock because... And now there is a, uh, there's a canal there now. And there's a modern-day canal. You can look it up. You can Google it. And you can see the canal. You could go through the canal, if, I guess, if you were on the ship, and uh, to make things easier. And so it would save them <clears throat> weeks of travel. And so what they would do during that day is they actually had a, almost a groove system for the ships for small, for small vessels. And they would pull the ship across land to the other side, saving them just a ton of time and a ton of money. And so naturally, Corinth became a central hub for people all around the world to come. And you really could look at Corinth as being one of the original sin cities. It had everything. It really did. It had everything um, of that day. And, um, and so what happened is the Romans destroyed ancient Corinth around 146 B.C., and rebuilt the city around 44 B.C. And by the time Paul really, you know, was coming into in, in Corinth, it was a modern major metropolitan city of that day. And they had a huge stadium, two large theaters. The outside the, uh, theater held 18,000 people. The indoor theater held 3,000. Every two years they had the Isthmian Games, which was similar to the Olympic Games of that day. And these were very popular and drew a lot of people. And so Corinth was where it was happening. Everything. Everything was happening there. In addition to the normal trappings of wealth and pleasure of Corinth, that can be a trap for anybody, it also was the home of the temple, um, ancient temple of um, Aphrodite, excuse me, and uh, was the goddess of physical love and sexual uh, pleasure. It also had a ton of prostitution there. There was prostitution everywhere. And um, the, the population of Corinth was about 300,000 people. And it was estimated that it was about a half million slaves in Corinth as well, not counting all the travelers who would come through. So Paul, he had spent about 18 months there in Corinth establishing this church. Now, when we read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, we're kind of reading a little bit between the lines. It's, it appears that the church in Corinth had wrote Paul on several different occasions asking questions. We don't know what those questions exactly, what, exactly what they are, but we, we're reading the answer in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, so we get an idea of what those questions were. And, and there was probably some other, other books written between um, or at least, at least writings between Paul and the church of Corinth, but these are the ones that God wanted us to know about. And this church was, it was wrecked. It, it really was. It was wrecked with divisions and factions and cliques where some of the members favored one preacher versus another. In fact, they would have arguments 
about it. In fact, there was a well-known preacher of that time, Apollos. Then there was Paul. Apollos was very elegant, and Paul was more factual, and, and uh, both, were, both were good. Both were Christians. Both were using the kingdom of God. But they had arguments about those kind of things. Imagine a church where believers do not work out their problems. Instead, they sue each other in public courts. That was going on. Imagine a church where <clears throat> debates range on topics like Christian liberty, men and women's roles, prophecy, speaking in tongues, and other spiritual gifts. And to top it off, imagine a church where some of them do not even believe in the coming bodily resurrection of the dead. That church is a first century church of Corinth, a church that the Apostle Paul founded. They had some major problems. So the question is, how did Paul respond to them? Did he start off scolding them? How did he deal with this messed up church? Well, at first, he starts off with words of gratitude. That's what we read. First nine verses. They're words of gratitude. They're words of encouragement. And, um, <clears throat> and, and what we see with this church, and what we see with the church today, and what I'm going to say, these statements, they seem contra, contradictory here a little bit, but just, just hear me out, um, that kind of flow from this passage from verse 1 to verse 17, this is what we see. We see the church... Is perfect. We see the church is not perfect. And third, we see the church will be perfect. Say, preacher, that doesn't make any sense. Just hear me out and uh, listen to the message, and you can prove me wrong. If I'm wrong, that's fine. But here's the first thing I want you to see Corinth is a beautiful mess. It's a beautiful mess. We say this sometimes about people we love. I won't mention anyone in my household. I'll give you a hint. It's not my sons. Beautiful mess, right? <clears throat> and that my wife and daughter are not in here. They're in kids' church today. So. Beautiful mess. Maybe you know someone who like that. This is a church. This church is a beautiful mess. And I'll say this as well. This letter that Paul writes is a real letter to real people. And the word of God that God has given us, it's, we're reading about real people with real issues, with real feelings. And when you study and you read the word of God, you, you see how relatable it is. And yes, there are certain things that you read about that maybe cultural, that we don't deal with, uh, that just kind of changes with depending on what culture you're in a little bit, sure. But the principles and the truth of God's word, it doesn't change. It doesn't change. Now, how is the church perfect? The church is perfect in this way. The church is perfect in its position, sanctified in Christ. Now, maybe you've heard that word before, sanctified. Maybe you know what it means, but maybe, maybe you're a little uncertain of what this word means. And let's just simplify what sanctify means. It means to be um, set apart or to be set aside for the use of God, for a special purpose. 
And the church is special to God. Jesus Christ bled and died for the church. He purchased it with his blood. God loves the church. And in fact, scripture is very clear that one day there's going to be a, a marriage between Christ and the church. It's symbolic, it's, it's mysterious because we don't know much about it. Something, it's something beautiful, and uh, we're a part of something wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. But it's sanctified. It is set apart. And so, um, and God has its perfect place. And so it's sanctified. So, for example, for example, when you accepted Christ as your Savior, you were set apart into the kingdom of God. Into God's family, you were set apart. You were sanctified. And there's really three types of sanctification. There's the initial saving. God sets you apart. There is the growing in grace phase where we all are at right now that God desires to set us more apart for, for the Lord, to make us more and more like Jesus. And, and it's a dying of to oneself. You know, I'm going to mention this. This is not my notes. This came to my mind. <clears throat> don't take this the wrong way. But there is this idea that you cannot really be complete or be right emotionally until you love yourself. Now, I think we should love ourselves in the sense of how God made us. But if you're, if you're truthful and you're really doing some reflecting in the mirror a little bit, there are some things you shouldn't like about yourself. Amen? I mean, there's some things you're like, man. I can be kind of ornery sometimes. I can kind of be this way sometimes. And we do need to show ourselves some grace, absolutely. But there's this idea in the world, and it's in, 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 not just in the world, but it starts to leak into the church, into Christianity, that you just need to be in love with yourself and even, even all the warts and everything. Don't worry about working or changing anything. That's just who you are. And while I get what they're trying to say, and I'm not saying, hey, once you leave here, go look in the mirror and say, I hate myself. That's not what I'm saying, all right? But when you read God's word, you read that the Holy Spirit leads us as believers to die to oneself. Why is that? Because it ends up being less of me and more of Jesus. And that's what we should desire. Less of me and I need more of Jesus. That's what I need. That's what you need. You need less of you and more of him. How, how is it? He loves you. He loves you in only a way in which God can love you. Because he's God. He knows what needs to change. He knows what needs to work. He knows. And he wired you. He made you the way he made you for a purpose, for a reason. To use your talents and your, your gifts and abilities to further the kingdom of of God and he's going to direct you that way so yes don't get me wrong I want you to love yourself I don't want you to hate yourself but man Christianity is a call to die to oneself and let Jesus Jesus change us and fill us because if we're honest there's some things we all don't like about ourselves there's some things that will never change unless unless there's a spiritual change and we let the Holy Spirit change us and he does, and he desires to do so. So yes, the church 
is perfect in its sanctification and what Christ did for us on the cross. And he rose again from the grave, conquering death, conquering the grave, offering grace and mercy and forgiveness to all who repent of their sins and give their life to Christ. And he uses imperfect people. He really does. He wants to use you. He is using this imperfect, wild, crazy church. This church has some major, major issues. If you thought you'd been in some messed up churches, man, Corinth is like, you know, hold my communion wine. And it goes, beers off. Grape juice, of course, but anyway. The church is not perfect. If ever there was a church to prove this truth, Corinth was that church. And so 1 Corinthians is not always easy to understand as you're reading it because you're almost reading, um, you don't know exactly what's being, what questions Paul is is answering. And um, it, it can be a little bit of like, trying to listen to one end of a telephone conversation. You're trying to piece it together. And uh, we know what we're hearing, but we don't always know what is said to prompt the response on our end. And there are enough hints here, though, we can piece a lot of it together. And Paul addresses the Corinthians as sanctified in Christ in verse 2. And so it means they were set apart. And for the sake of clarity, theologians speak of justification as the past one-time event of our salvation. Sanctification as the ongoing transformation that continues throughout a believer's life. And glorification as um, um, that time in which we finally we get to see Jesus face to face. Our faith becomes sight. And so the church is not perfect. We're perfect in our position But while we're here on earth, we have struggles, we have problems, there is no perfect church. And then thirdly, the church will be perfect. Obviously the church in Corinth was a mess, but it was still a church. The solution for this church in Corinth was repentance and spiritual renewal. Not a rejection of the work of God among them. The church isn't perfect, but neither is is, is uh, what Jesus is doing in our church. He, he's not done yet. But someday the church, even the messed up ones like Corinth, will be perfect. Jesus will see to that. In the eyes of the world, the church will always have problems. And man, does, do, do people ever, especially in the media, love to point out issues in the church? Always will be. Some, maybe you even said this yourself, I'm not going to go to church. There's hypocrites there. And maybe it's a little ornery. Every now and then, I have said it before. I don't recommend it saying it this way unless you know the person. There's always room for one more. That's what I said. <laughs> this is probably a better answer. I had to think it through a little bit. Is there a better place for a hypocrite than church? Now, and it makes them think, oh, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. I've grown up in church my entire life. I don't remember the first time I went to church. Maybe you do, and I know there's different people with different backgrounds, and you're at different you know, areas in your life. 
and maybe you've been hurt in church before. Dave Ramsey, the financial guru, said this. He said about church, he said, if you've never been hurt in church, you know what that means? You probably were never involved. There's a lot of truth to that. I've been hurt in church, even when I wasn't a pastor. And at the end of the day, you go to church, and you're faithful in church out of your love for Jesus. You serve not to please your parents, not to please your pastor, not to please so-and-so. You do it because you want to please and you want to serve Jesus. That's our goal. That's our, that's our focus. People will let you down in life. Even good Christian ones, even when they, they, they don't mean to, sometimes it just happens. People will let you down in life. Does that mean that you stop loving them? Does it mean you stop helping them? Does it mean, no. It means that you do what you do because of your love for the Lord. And you continue on doing what is right. Loving people, loving God, loving loving his church. And one day the church will be perfect. What is the church? The church is us. The church is made up of normal, born-again, baptized believers that are furthering the kingdom of God. And sometimes we like to think of the church as just the building. And the building is definitely a ministry tool. It definitely is a place that is, should be special to us. No doubt, I'm sure many of you have been here for years and you have memories of kids and grandkids and funerals and weddings and so on here. And it, it's really special to you. By all means, that's important. But at the end of the day, the church is not the building. It's us. It's individuals that come together. And, and in, this, in this church, in this gathering that we have together, we're told, and when you read the New Testament, you read of people who are dedicated to the church. It's not something that is like tacked on in their life. It's something that really matters to them. It's something that many of them are willing to die for. And, and, and there, there are people that, missionary friends I know, and there's, there's people connected to even this church that are missionaries in the Middle East where when someone decides to follow Jesus and they leave Islam, some of them are kicked out of their own families for just following Jesus. They lose their job just for following Jesus. Would you still follow Jesus if it meant you not having your job any longer? Would you still follow Jesus if it meant your family said, you're not welcome for Thanksgiving or Christmas any longer? You see, it really starts to, really starts to make us wonder that, that when you read Scripture, I think it's Luke 14, that Jesus said, you need to count the cost if you're going to follow me. If you're going to follow me, you need to make sure you know what you're getting into. And there are some who don't. They think maybe just becoming a Christian is saying a quick prayer. And definitely part of that, repenting and praying and asking Christ, that's, that's the simplicity of it. But it's a, it's, a, it's a quickly get saved, I'll get, my, I'll get my, kind of my ticket for heaven, and that's all really what salvation is. My friend, you may have just missed it. Because salvation, when you give your life to Christ, Christ says, I'm now the boss. You're going to listen to what I have to say. And he's given us his Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us. He, we, we don't belong to us. He owns us. He says, you're going to do what I tell you to do if you want to live, if you want to experience the blessings of which I have for you. It is good. 
It's good. It's not bad. But we have this wrestling between our flesh and the Spirit of God going, but I want to do what I want to do. And we kind of go back and forth. Sometimes we think to ourselves, Jesus, I want you to save me, but I want to be able to live and be the God of my life. And when you read Scripture, that's not what you see. You see a Jesus who says, I don't want some of you, I want all of you. I want all of you. Hebrews 10, 25 says and tells us as believers that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves as a manner of some. In other words, we as believers should be faithfully going to church. Going to church does not make you a Christian. It doesn't. Uh, but, but giving your life to Christ, absolutely. And nowhere in the Bible does it say that a, you have to go to church in order to be a Christian. But it does say if you are a Christian, you should be going to church. Hebrews 10, 25 is clear on that. And so where is the church in your, in your list of priorities? I hope that it's number one. You see, God isn't finished with his church. And Christian, God isn't done with you. Regardless of what age you are right now, God is not done with you. See, Corinth was blessed by God. But man, they also were divided by pride. They really were. Notice verse 10. Paul said, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For some members of Chloe's household have told me about the quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters, some of uh, you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I'm a follow, I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. Or I only follow Christ. Has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius. For now, no one can say they were baptized in my name. Oh, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. But I don't remember baptizing anyone else. This church in Corinth had some pride issues. It was divided. And this church was in danger of dividing even more. And so they were trying to one-up one another. And so it was kind of as silly as this. Let's say I baptize some of you, but some of you in the past were baptized by Austin, or you were baptized by one of our deacons, or you were baptized by Brother Connie in the past, or many of you were. And for some silly reason, some of you all started arguing, my baptism is better because Austin baptized me. I feel this is more special. And then some of you were arguing, but Pastor Lucas or Brother Connie or this deacon baptized me, and you're arguing over... Who had the best baptism? Dude, that's just ridiculous. That's silly. But that's what was going on. It was showing their lack of maturity. And they were arguing over some stupid things. And man, sometimes churches, they fight over some stupid things. They'll fight over what color light bulbs you should put in. They argue sometimes over the color of the carpet. They'll argue over, you know... Um, two ply, one ply, or three ply, or what, you know. 
But you know, if it's one pie, you can kind of understand. <laughs> they call that John, Way John Wayne toilet paper. <laughs> if you don't know what that means, I'll tell you outside of the pulpit. <laughs> I don't know what goes through my brain sometimes, right? I just, you know... My notes guide me, but they don't tell me everything. But, um. but notice Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. It says this about unity. It says, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults. Notice that. Man, sometimes, sometimes as a whole, I've been pastoring about 20 years, we don't always make an allowance for each other's faults. We don't. And, and we need to do that. In other words, we need, to show, we need to show grace. It's not that we forget truth, that we hide truth. But man, we need truth in one hand, absolutely. But we need grace and love in the other. Right? And maybe you've been in some churches where they showed a lot of grace and little truth. <clears throat> can run into some problems. I've been in some churches where they show a lot of truth, but man, there's little grace, or there's a little bit of love, not much. We need a balance there, and we need to make allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourself united in the Spirit, binding yourself together with peace. Unity is important to God. In fact, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to keep the church unified together. And so when it comes to this subject of unity, now I'll be very clear, obviously there's core doctrines that are important, that if they are not being taught correctly, then it kind of gloves off a little bit, especially when it's heresy and something being taught. If we're teaching a different gospel, preaching a different gospel, like those are major issues that should be fought over. There's some things worth fighting over. There's some secondary issues that are worth discussing and maybe having different points of view that are, that are worth it. I'm not sure if they're worth fighting over, but definitely discussing. But, but here in the subject of unity, we need to realize that God has made us all a little bit different as well. And praise the Lord, we had you know, opening weekend of college football, right? That was fun. That was good. And as you watch the games, there's different positions. Each one of them is very important. You can have the greatest quarterback ever, but if he doesn't have a good offensive line, is he going to be great? Of course not. He needs protection. He needs someone to throw to. He needs a running back. He needs a good defense to stop the other offense. Can you imagine some of those offensive linemen saying, you know what, I'm sick of this quarterback. I think I can be a better quarterback. In the middle of the game, middle of, of getting ready to take a snap, they put the quarterback at left tackle, and they put the left tackle at quarterback. You know what's going to happen if you watch any football. You're going to have some major problems. They're all each important. They just have a different role. And they need to be unified in order to move forward together as a team. If they can't, it's going to be disastrous. You know, if an orchestra, or, orchestra is harmonious, and it's not because they're all playing the same instrument, it's because they're all playing the same song. We all have different gifts and abilities to the Spirit and given to all of us. So we all have the same purpose. We all have, many of us have different gift, uh, or different in our giftedness. And so it's not because 
um, a choir is singing, um, when they're singing in great harmony, it's not because they're singing the same parts, it's because they're adding their part to the same song. It is a goal that produces unity. Unity is not sameness. Unity has to do with the same purpose. And you know where churches get, have a lot of disunity is when they lose sight of their purpose. Our purpose is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and disciple people in their faith. That's our purpose. That's our goal. That's what we're focused in on. And when you're focused on your purpose, in any good team, any church, you at times run into adversity, right? Adversity are opportunities for a team to grow, grow in their connectedness and, to, and togetherness. You never know what's going to happen. I remember once when um, I was playing soccer, and um, we were playing C&E, and I think it was my freshman or sophomore year, and we were so excited. We were pumped. And a couple of the guys found some four-leaf clovers. In fact, they ended up finding five of them in the middle of our warm-up. No joke. We were so excited. We're going to win five to nothing. <laughs> we, were, we, were, we were so excited. And we're playing at CNE, and you know what? We lost, and I'm not lying, five to nothing. <laughs> we found their four-leaf clovers. I don't pick those things up anymore. So what does real unity look like? Well, it's not uniformity. God likes to use different types of people. It's not avoiding issues. There's a time to even judge in the church. Matthew 7, judge not least you be judged, has to do with judging outsiders. There's a time actually to judge in the church. Judge with a righteous judgment. That's a whole other message within and of itself that Scripture is very clear on. And the purpose is to help people get back on track and following Jesus. It's not overlooking sin. The greatest way to lose God's blessing is just to overlook sin and ignore sin. We, you have to address that from time to time. It gives other Christians the same grace God gives. It distinguishes between the, what is essential and merely important. It honors diversity in spiritual gifts, calling, and taste. It understands we all have blind spots. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I'll end with this. Unity is centered around the gospel. It is. We should be about the gospel. And not just, okay, preacher, I know about the gospel. I've accepted Christ. But are you living out the gospel? Are you sharing the gospel? We should always be about the gospel. And there's what Paul said in verse 17. So they're arguing back and forth. My baptism is better than yours because Apollos baptized me. Mine's better because Paul baptized me or Peter baptized me. This is what, 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 what Paul ends up saying in 17. For Christ didn't send me to baptize but to preach the good news and not with clever speech for the fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. If you ever wondered, if you ever wondered if baptismal regeneration was legit, 17 seems to be a fly in the ointment saying, Paul's like, man, Christ sent me to make sure I'm spreading the gospel. Not that I'm baptizing everybody. We get baptized to show, show publicly the inward change, what the gospel has done. And so he makes a distinction between baptism and the gospel. A church 
a member in a certain church who previously had been attending services regularly stopped going. After a few weeks, the pastor decided to visit him. It was a chilly evening, and the pastor found the man home alone, sitting at the fireplace next to his rocking chair with a blazing fire there in the fireplace. Guessing the reason for the pastor's visit, the man welcomed him in, and they exchanged pleasantries, and they both sat down in front of the fireplace, and they both were quiet without either man really saying a word. Eventually there came a time where the pastor, the pastor decided to pick up the fire tongs and carefully picked up a bright burning ember and placed it to the side on the hearth all alone. And he sat back in his chair, still silent, as the once glowing ember went from red and orange to being black all by itself. Both men just sat there and looked as they were enjoying the warmth of the fire. And the preacher decided, well, I think it's time for me to head on out. But before he did, he took the tongs once again and took the ember and placed it back with all the other embers in the glowing fire. And the ember started to glow again. And as the preacher got up, to leave for the door, his host said, thank you so much, Pastor, for your visit, and especially for your fiery sermon. <laughs> I'll see you in church next Sunday. He was reminding, he was reminding this church member, we're better together. We're a part of something unstoppable, the church, that God loves, that he is for that's worth investing in of your time, money, and resources. You know, maybe you've been coming to Sunday morning services, which is wonderful, and that should be a part of our lives. But we do have something, as Brother Austin mentioned earlier, we have small groups. These purpose of these small groups, and I tell you, I've been to many of them. Many of them have invited me to some of their summer gatherings. And if you're new here or even thinking about getting in one, this is what I want you to know about these people. They love each other. They really do. They enjoy being around one another. They enjoy laughing. They have fun. And they also focus on the Word of God. They support one another. And here's a danger that you run into when you're not in a small group. You miss out on really developing some close relationships that just happen really naturally. They really do. And I've seen this in church before. As a pastor in South Carolina and a pastor in Florida, this is what I've seen. People who get connected into a small group, they enjoy, they enjoy church more. They do. But this is the danger of what also what happens. And I've seen this. You'll have some folks, they will come to church, which is great. They'll get to know maybe a couple of people. But then they either have some health issues or a mom or their mother or father starts having some health issues. 
and they need that support system. They have some issues maybe with their children. They're looking for some help. They may even start having some marriage issues. And they just, they just need some friends who will come alongside them, not to judge them, but just to say, you know what? We're here for you. We're praying for you. And there's times in which you have someone pass away that you have those small group members. They're bringing you over so much food that you don't know what to do with it, with all of it. Maybe there's some people right now, they had surgery this week. They're not here at church. Maybe they're watching online. And I was talking to one of them. They said, man, I said, you need anything? We just need help eating all this food people brought us. What I'm saying is that when you don't get in one of those groups, I've seen those people kind of just, they, they feel like no one cares in the church about them. When in fact, there are many, many caring people. You just simply, I want to say this with love. You either were too hesitant or maybe even afraid. And maybe even some, you just got a little lazy. And you missed out. And you wonder, where's the love? And you're missing out on the open door. You have to get up and open that door. And it's there. It really is. It's there waiting for you. We're not a perfect church. You may go to one small group and go, man, I don't know if this is the one for me. We have many other ones. It's fine. Sometimes you click with certain people more than others. That's okay. It's okay. But I really do want to encourage you to do that. If you're college age, you might be wondering right now, man, is there something for me? There is. In fact, they meet at 11.15. My daughter's in that. Some other kid, uh, I call them kids. College age, um, uh, you know, young adults are in that group. We have some for senior adults. We have some for middle. We have all different ages and life stages where you're at in life. Man, don't miss out on that blessing because it will be a blessing to you. And what I found in church is oftentimes what you put into something is usually what you get out of it. And it'll be a blessing to you. Let's just kind of have a time of reflection and prayer and we'll, we'll finish up here this morning and thank you for being here. Let's go to the Lord in prayer at this time. Thank you for your love. Thank you for, thank you for our church. God, I pray that during this time of reflection, we all are just kind of asking ourselves, am I letting God use me the way he wants to use me and the church he's placed me in? Are we doing that? It's only a, question that you can answer personally maybe you are and that's wonderful but maybe you realize it's time to get involved it's time to use your gifts and abilities for the Lord for the kingdom God thank you for loving us thank you for gifting us to your spirit that every person here 
can be used for you to further your church. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name.